This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Of course, uh, the PC leadership race, we all know what's happened there and uh, how it came to a head on the weekend. And, uh, and of course, a new leader has been chosen. That is Doug Ford. And Doug Ford, the new leader of the Ontario PC Party, is with us now. Good afternoon, Doug. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Oh, that's great, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Congratulations. What does it feel like now that you're in the door? Well, it feels great. I'm excited. I'm excited to uh, crisscross the province once again. I've already uh, crisscrossed the province for the last three weeks, but look forward to doing it as leader of the PC party. All right. Uh, we're just, it's only Wednesday, man. This was all uh, just sort of started on, on Monday. It seems we've made uh, more gains in, in the last couple of days than we have in, a lot, in an awful long time with the issues that are hitting the fan here. Uh, you started talking about sex ed and, and brought that up again. And, and it looks like, well, what are you going to do with it? Because some say you're going to scrap it. Some say you're going to tweak it. What are you going to do with the sex ed? What's the plan here? Yeah, what we want to do is look at the whole education curriculum. We we have math students in our province, the grade six math students haven't even hit the the provincial standards. We should be in the highest percentile in, in the entire world. Uh, when it comes to sex ed, we're going to repeal it. We're going to uh, make sure that we uh, tweak it and consult with the parents. Scott, the parents weren't consulted uh, with, and the teachers weren't consulted with. So we're going to sit down with uh, parents across this province, get their input and uh, just make sure it's age-appropriate. Uh, my question here, here is, Doug, why even go there? I mean, this has been running for a couple of years. The PCs, you know, latest poll says it doesn't matter who's in charge, you're going to beat Kathleen Wynne. Why go there and, and open this can of worms now? Well, because you have to be a principal leader. When you crisscross the province, and uh, you're hearing that as one of the major issues when it comes to the education, uh, we're, we're going to have to make a change there. And uh, it's unfortunate that uh, Kathleen Wynne didn't consult with uh, parents and didn't consult with the teachers, but we're, we're going to do that. And, uh, but most importantly, it's, it's not even the sex that it's, it's uh, all the curricular documents we have to review to make sure they're up to standards or, or uh, our students are being failed by the politicians here. And uh, I want to find out uh, uh, why our grade six students, half of them, uh, haven't even hit their provincial standards when... We live in Ontario. They should be in the highest percentile in the entire world. So that's, that's concerning when basic math skills uh, aren't there in the classroom. But then right away, Scott, the Liberals want to throw $60 million at this, you know, to fix the problem. Sure enough, the, the grade six students are still at the, uh, haven't hit the provincial uh, standards. So that's, that's concerning. Again, I don't mean to keep dwelling on the sex ed uh, thing, Doug, but i got to get it clear here. Is, are you going to scrap this thing or are you going to tweak it? We're repealing it. We're, we're, we're repealing it, and then uh, we're going to review everything, all the two, I think it's 242 pages of it, and uh, there, there are some good things in there, uh, but uh, we want to start fresh with the, the parents, and, uh, and in certain areas, we, we may be changing it, maybe 5%, 10% of it, so it's not major. I just want to make it age-appropriate when... Uh, when uh, kids hop in the car, I was with uh, Rob's son hops in the hops in the car at nine years old and tell me how he learned all about sex today. You know that starts at home. Uh, we all went through sex ed, Scott, uh, but it was more age appropriate. So that, that's all we want to do. We aren't going to get into the liberal ideology that's being rammed down our throat for the last fifteen years. The but one thing done. The one thing, Doug, though, that we have to, and I'm just saying this as a parent of a 10 and a 15-year-old, it's what these kids know nowadays because of their access to the Internet, and we can't police it 24-7. What they know now is way more than we ever knew. Oh, yeah, you're 100% 100 right. So, you know, we're going to make sure it's appropriate, and and it's up to the households, too. Some some people have blocks on their Internet that you can't go to certain areas, but I hear you loud and clear, Scott, but that's not the... That's not the number one issue. I'll tell you what the number one issue is when I'm crisscrossing Ontario. Number one issue, they feel like the, the government's been gouging them uh, on all three levels. The, the grassroots people are frustrated. They didn't have a voice. They have a voice now. And they're tired of being gouged with uh, tax after tax after tax. And they look at their, their hydro bills. They're, you know, they have a, a choice between heating and eating right now, a lot of people. So we're going to reduce hydro rates. We're going to make sure that uh, we put money back in the taxpayers' pockets instead of the government's. 
You were touching on alcohol and marijuana distribution, which, of course, uh, is going to be a big issue, I guess, coming up later on this summer. Your thoughts on how, uh, you know, beer and wine in grocery stores has rolled out. What are your thoughts moving forward with that? Yeah, well, what I've, what I've seen with the, the beer, alcohol uh, in the retail stores, the Liberal government has chosen to pick and choose their favorite retailers. That's, that's wrong. It's not fair to all retailers across the province. If you're going to do it, be fair to everyone. And uh, you don't pick and choose who, who are the lucky retailers that get it and the unlucky ones that don't. So we need to make sure that uh, we roll out right across the province have an equal playing field for every single retailer. What that will do, too, it will give uh, the consumer more choice. It will reduce costs, I believe, and, uh, and uh, rather than just picking and choosing. Can you see eventually moving liquor stores into a grocery store setting? Sure. I, I, I think that would be uh, feasible to do. I really do. And uh, just, to, again, it's about the consumer. It's happening right, right across North America. So why not in Ontario? And what about pot sales, uh, Doug? Uh, obviously, this is something that uh, uh, do you think we're going to be ready for it? Is, 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 you know, if you guys are elected, will you be ready for it? And, and what do you suggest moving forward? I, I didn't. I broke up on the very first part of your question. I apologize. Obviously, uh, marijuana sales uh, yeah. allowed yeah. later on this summer. Uh, various provinces doing it various different ways. We've sort of chosen the the LCBO method. What would you do moving forward? And as a government, can we be ready for all this? Yeah. See, this is a path that uh, none of us have ever gone down this road. Uh, I think we're going to learn off uh, each other, off the provinces. But I, I truly believe we have to tread very, very carefully here. Uh, right at the beginning, yes, we'll, we'll go through the LCBO, but eventually, eventually, I don't believe in government controlling uh, any market. I believe uh, letting the market dictate, and uh, eventually we're going to have to roll that out, uh, similar to the, the liquor and beer and, and wine, but uh, let's do it with caution. Uh, your platform saying uh, health and education, one of the top priorities. Let's talk about health care. Obviously, there's an ongoing fighting with the doctors and nurses. Uh, how, do you, how do you propose to correct that? Yeah, you know, the, the doctors and nurses, we have the greatest doctors and nurses in the entire world right here in Ontario. They've been under full attack by this Liberal government like I've never seen before. They're, they're frustrated, and, and we have a great team of doctors. We have world-class doctors uh, heading up our health care team. Uh, we're also getting input from nurses. And full disclosure, I got a soft spot uh, for nurses. I saw uh, how, you know, the job they did when I, when I was in the hospital with my brother Rob, and I stayed over there. Uh, day in and day out, and I, you really, you really see the pressure they're under. It's absolutely staggering. So they're going to need resources. And with the with the hospital, the person heading up my health team is Dr. Ruben Devlin. Uh, he was instrumental in building the first digital hospital in North America. It's amazing. If you ever have a chance, uh, go to uh, the, the Humber River Hospital. Ask for a tour. It's uh, it's just state of the art, and that's what we want to use as a platform moving forward to make sure we reduce wait times for people in the hospitals. And, and again, all the doctors are saying, our team of doctors, Doug, we just want to be listened to. And I'm a strong believer, Scott, in letting the professionals uh, run the business, not some politician at Queen's Park. What about education? Obviously, uh, as I mentioned, I have kids. We've dealt with teacher strikes and such over the last several years. It seems we have, uh, you know, a momentary uh, peace in the valley at this point. How are you going to balance keeping everyone uh, in that neck of the woods happy and, and do what you need to do as far as cost cutting? Yeah, well, we see, uh, we saw what happened with the called strike. We had the longest called strike in Ontario's history for five weeks. And Scott, you know what's amazing, and, and I didn't even realize this, and I'm sure a lot of people uh, didn't realize it, 26,000 students never came back to school. That's 26,000 students that are missing a year of education. So, again, the Liberal government's failing the, the students there. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to sitting down and putting together a team of teachers, not, not, not union reps, not uh, labor leaders, but actually frontline teachers that are giving me input. I, I've had this simple philosophy, Scott, let the frontline people give you ideas. Let them come up with the ideas. No one knows the job better than the teachers. I have a lot of friends that are teachers. We have great teachers in this province, and uh, they're going to have a lot of input on uh, doing things more efficiently. That's how we save a billion dollars for the taxpayers in Toronto, 
is by listening to the frontline people. They have the best ideas. Uh, e- uh, a listener emailed me with a question on road tolls. What are your thoughts on road tolls? And that's just another tax. There's no road tolls at all. Uh, that, that's just another tax. And so it's like the carbon tax. It's a terrible tax. Uh, the carbon tax is terrible for people. It's terrible for businesses. It puts us at an unfair playing field when we're trying to compete uh, against everyone in the world and compete against our friends south of the border. That their their economy is booming right now. Manufacturing jobs are coming in. Trillions of dollars are coming in, and uh, unemployment's the lowest in 20 years. So this is what we're up against. So we we better get uh, our house in shape to compete against uh, other markets in the world. Uh, what about uh, environment tests on cars? Another question from a listener, the e-test. Yeah, you know, you know something? We're going to review that. I've, I've talked to a lot of people about that, and I'm, I'm just not sold on it uh, personally. But, again, I, I don't make all decisions. I always consult with the industry. The industry comes first. Uh, listen to them. I also discuss it with our caucus members, and we'll make a decision. But a lot of these things are unnecessary tax grabs off the public, and that's, it's frustrating as anything. Similar to wind turbines, it's costing us money for these wind turbines. It's actually costing us money to put them up. So it's not a very efficient way to deliver energy. How do you correct the electricity issue? That obviously a huge issue with Ontarians. You say you're going to cut it 22%. How, how do we get there, especially with contracts that have been signed? Yeah, and those contracts are sole source deals, which uh, that's coming to an end. There's no more lining the pockets of their buddies, feathering their nest. Uh, the party's over with the taxpayers' money. We're going to start <clears throat> start respecting the taxpayers. We're going to review every single contract, and uh, where possible, we're going to tear them up and uh, go out for bid. Because there's a lot of, and it's a very complicated uh, industry, and, and the way the, the hydro rates have been artificially, artificially, uh, skyrocketing. Uh, it's the Bay Street people in Toronto. It's the bankers, the investment bankers that are making billions of dollars. Uh, people have told me these figures, and we'll drill down on these figures, that uh, they've made over $17 billion on this industry off the backs of hardworking tax people, uh, taxpayers. All right, one last question, and then I'll let you go, Doug. Uh, the opposition coming at you as a, an extreme right-winger, you're going to cut everything to schmitherines, uh, even comparing you to Donald Trump. What, what do you say to people when you hear that stuff? Well, you know, some, I have a proven track record. Our, our family's been in politics for 30 years, giving back to communities. Uh, so like, in comparison to Donald Trump, they might as well throw out the window because the people know me. And they're, they're panicking because I attract, you know, Traditional voters that vote for us are NDP union members, and uh, the other uh, group is 49% of traditional liberal voters. And I've, as I've crisscrossed the part, I mean, the province, Scott, I'm a lifelong NDP member, full member, I'm supporting you. Or I disenfranchised from your, our party for 20 years, I'm back, I have faith in you. And uh, they're terrified. I know a lot of liberal insiders, uh, they've called me up and they said, Doug, you know, Kathleen Wynne is terrified you're going you're gonna to end up winning uh, big time in, in Toronto, which uh, we haven't seen a PC member outside of Raymond Cho that I helped with uh, since the Mike Harris days, 20 years being elected. So that's what they're terrified, and they'll do anything to win this uh, election. They'll buy votes. They'll do whatever it takes to win this election, but the people are too smart. The people are fed up. We're going to move this province forward. We'll have the most prosperous province anywhere in North America, best region to do business in. We're going to cut taxes, and I'm going to go down to the border with this big neon sign saying Ontario is open for business. Doug Ford has been with us, a new leader of the Ontario PC Party, and, of course, uh, the race is on. Doug, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate it. Good luck. Thank you so much, Scott. Look forward to coming on again. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. The UK is expelling 23 diplomats in response to the nerve gas used to uh, the, in the attempted assassination of a former spy uh, and his daughter. Prime Minister Theresa May says there was no explanation given by the Russian government. To talk more about all of this, John Thompson is with his security consultant, Strategic Intelligence Group, and is with us now. John, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, this sounds something, um, it sounds like it's something out of a spy novel. Uh, how unusual is this? What's your take on this? Oh, there's a, a long list of, uh, of Soviet and Russian murders of, uh, 
uh, former spies, dissidents, exiles with uh, all sorts of interesting substances. Um, Why kill a spy on someone else's soil that you probably deem to be neutral at this point? Well, well, the Russians have been doing that for years. Uh, and sometimes they've had other people to do it. I mean, you think back to the 80s when they, uh, the uh, umbrella gun with the ricin that was used in a Bulgarian uh, defector. Uh, or you go back to uh, some murders in Germany in the in 1950s of uh, uh, Ukrainian nationalists. I mean, this is, this is a very long history for the Russians. So is this, re- fact, is this, a, is this revenge or a threat? Both. It is revenge on the, the, the target, and it's a threat to everybody else. Uh, and, and I guess the, my point that I was trying to make, itself, yeah. I guess the point that I'm making here, are these people a threat to Russia, even though they've let them go, and whether it's a prisoner swap or what have you, are these people, uh, is this guy that's in the hospital now, is he still a threat to the Russian government? Um, Sergei is, uh, well, sorry, I shouldn't use his first name, I've never met him, but you know, uh, Sergei Skripal is not really a threat to Russia, but this is also to dissuade other people who could be potential threats to Russia. Hmm. Uh, and, and we know, I mean, the, the Russians keep very, very long grievances. In, in fact, uh, if you were uh, called Igor Gazenko, the uh, the cipher clerk who defected in Ottawa in 1945, they were still looking for him in the 1980s. So what's your take on this one? Anything different here? I mean, what's what's different with this one? Well, usually, um, to be perfectly honest, the Russians have been a lot more precise when they're using fancy, weird uh, bio, uh, biochemical toxins on people. Uh, but using nerve gas generally is really indiscriminate. And, and this is a problem that the, the, the British have encountered. I mean, if you uh, hit somebody with a, uh, a pellet from an air gun that contains ricin or you, uh, you know, spray a load of hydrogen cyanide into the exact target's face, you just get the target. But if you're using nerve gas, you're, you're uh, getting everybody with the target. You're contaminating an area with a, a very powerful agent, which may have a very long life. And remember that the the police officer who first went to the aid of uh, uh, of the, the Russian and his daughter has also been hospitalized and seriously ill. And is there and other is, people is, have had to be checked out? Is there still a threat in Salisbury? I know that they were concerned about that. Um, well, that, that's the other problem. If nerve gas is used, uh, you then have to spend a lot of time and effort decontaminating the whole area. So uh, I, I, it, I don't think there's a threat in Salisbury anymore, uh, but you know, they probably the, the total bill would be millions of dollars to clean up the, uh, the, the place where the script piles were hit. Hmm. Why is this happening now? Why do you think this happened now, John? It's, uh, it's funny. Um, but, I mean, um, Putin has always sort of, you know, showed a, a contempt for uh, the Western world and for our mores. Um, but I think he's also been sending a number of signals. And, you know, again, some of the signals are quite subtle. But he tensions are really ramping up with Russia and NATO. That's, that's for sure. And it's actually it should be frightening to people how much they are ramping up. How do you explain and, that? Why now? Well, I think it's actually Putin is trying to do some distractions for a domestic audience. But at the same time, I mean, he's also positioning himself. Remember, one thing about Russians, it's that old, old, tired analogy that Americans are poker players, mm-hmm. you know, focused on one outcome and, and the, the stuff they've got in their hand. But Russians are chess players, and they will make a move, may have several outcomes, and then pursue the outcome that you know, it seems to be the best from what they've done. But you, you look at some of the other things. For example, Putin has just uh, displayed some of Russia's new weapon systems, nuclear weapon systems, and some of them are scary. Um, and th- there's also a common thread with his use of chemical weaponry. Uh, remember that nerve gas and, and chemical weapons are supposed to be illegal now. Hmm. You know, it took a long time, but in the 1980s, the, the U.S. and the Russians inked a deal about no more nuclear weapons and not have, sorry, chemical weapons and, and not having any more stockpiles. You know, I, I, I saw at uh, Rock Island Arsenal the, uh, the Americans sagging down the, the last of their mustard gas containers and turning them into lawnmower parts for John Deere tractors. Um, 
it's over. And then all of a sudden, here come the Russians using nerve gas again in public in another country. Where is the U.S. on this? Where is Trump on this? Um, Trump is also sending mixed signals, but that's not, I think, because of any great towering intellect or history of gamesmanship. But uh, uh, nothing new for I, that's nothing new for Trump, John. But I mean, I'm sure that uh, the UK could use some support right now. It has, and and the U.S. State Department, even though they they just had the Secretary of State sacked yesterday, still released a statement, and Trump is letting it stand. Uh, maybe it's one of his sort of, you know, three steps forward, two steps back moves where he's uh, letting Tillerson um, have some dignity in his remaining days in office. Uh, or you can read something else into it. Although, um, again, you know, the Russians have a habit of doing things with several outcomes, and that also includes their meddling with both parties in the last U.S. Uh, presidential election. And some of the other things they've been doing, especially on social media. What will this do uh, to the uh, the relationship between Trump and Putin, which, you know, I mean, nobody really knows what that's all about. Uh, but obviously, Tillerson speaks out against Russia. He's fired, the, you know, he's fired within a day. Mind you, we knew this was coming, I guess. Is this just a coincidence? And, and, and how does this change uh, relations between Trump and Putin? Well, um, I think it's just a coincidence, but uh, it's the other point is that I don't want or I don't want to believe that Trump and Putin have a close, chummy relationship. So there's no evidence that they do. I mean, the closest meeting they had was at the same dinner table, and they were both far enough apart that they wouldn't have been able to talk. Then why does Donald uh, Trump allude like he has some sort of soft spot for them? Well, at some level... Um, the, Amer- the, the Americans have been really, really sloppy in the last 30 years, since the end of the Cold War. Basically, um, um, the moment you know, the Clinton presidency and everything that followed through that, they, they left some vital relationships uh, and some p- uh, pieces of uh, business lapse. And one of them is the relationship with Russia over strategic weapons, you know, nuclear, chemical, and biological weapons. And if you look back, you know, after the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, you then had, a, you know, basically a 30-year process uh, of working out relationships with the Russians, sitting down, hammering out all sorts of concrete agreements that were, that were important uh, and went a long way to regulating the, these very, very dangerous weapons. And then for 30 years, there's been nothing. Uh, and so all of a sudden, Putin has just shown that Russia has violated its treaty agreement. It's manufacturing nerve agents. You know, it's, it's got a stock of them. Um, some of the new weapons they, uh, they just released, uh, again, are, are game changers. You know, this underwater torpedo that can move 10,000 miles, sorry, 10,000 kilometers, a kilometer deep underwater quietly, and then explode with a 100 megaton warhead. I mean, right off the bat, that is a, a serious game changer. But it also means that you know the carefully negotiated limits on warhead size have just gone out the window, uh, and they produced a, a very destabilizing new weapon. And of course, typical Russians—they're uh, about the only major power in the world that wouldn't have to worry about similar weapons because you know they're not that exposed to you know nuclear-induced tsunamis on their coastline. Um, but Think about this. Uh, also, the, the whole point about uh, weapons on the seabed or in the deep sea. The Russians have just shown that their uh, <clears throat> the old arms control agreement is over. I mean, the Americans have to sit down and talk with these guys again and get that uh, relationship reestablished. Is the Trump administration capable of doing that? I don't know. I mean, he's, it's like watching him um, on the uh, on NAFTA, I mean, the man is all over the bloody map. You don't know what he's thinking. He's, he's just not a good... I mean, he might be a good negotiator for real estate in Manhattan or for running a game show, but for international diplomacy, um, you, know, you want somebody who's a little more steady. What does expelling uh, 23 uh, Russian diplomats do? What sort of message does that, does that send? Uh, how is that weighted as a response? Well, that's a traditional response. Remember, we've had several mass expulsions of Russians in Canada over the last 50 years. 
actually the last uh, seven years. And what it does is it produces a temporary hiccup in their intelligence gathering. Remember, well, everybody uses the diplomats for intelligence gathering, but the Russians um, are a lot more cynical about it, and, and they're a lot more aggressive. So uh, a whole mess of the people who are the, the contacts and supporters for their agents will be on the way back to Moscow now, and the Russians will have to replace them. But the Russians will also uh, turn around and replace, you know, send home a, probably uh, an equal number plus one in terms of British diplomats. So so what now, John? As you mentioned, you know, uh, 30 years ago, Reagan, uh, tear down this wall, all of that. It was a new day. It was a new time. Are we going backwards here? Um, yeah, and, I, and what I'm afraid of is we might be going back to the 1950s with all sorts of, you know, crazy weapon systems being introduced and deployed, uh, you know, largely because we could and not because we were thinking about the consequences. Um, it, I'd really be a lot more comfortable if they got back and started negotiating that relationship. But the problem is, of course, is you have to, you know, the, the Americans used to have a solid raft of people who understood the Soviet Union and understood Soviet politics. And regardless of the administration, those experts were there. Uh, but, the, you know, those experts have all been retired and dismissed in the last 30 years. And, uh, you know, in the chanceries of the world, including in Washington, you've got a bunch of punk kids who don't know anything from anything. Uh, and not the old veterans who understood how the game was played. Uh, Donald Trump uh, boasting last week about a possible meeting with Kim Jong-un. Uh, how does this play into this discussion and why not a meeting with Putin? Well, yeah, that's, that's, that's the point. I'd, I'd much rather that they were meeting uh, with Putin and sitting down to some serious things. Uh, Kim Jong-un, um, I think the South Korean take on it is more important. And the South Koreans are saying that, I mean, that Kim, North Korea is, is not a nation. It's, it's not a country. Um, don't even think of it as one. What you really have is a giant theme park with 25 million people enslaved in it. And you know, call it revolution land. It's run for the benefit of you know a very narrow group of families who actually run the North Korean regime. And they basically have everyone else you know, almost literally enslaved. But they also like to posture and pretend that they're, they're players in the big league. And that's why they've been working on missiles and uh, nuclear warheads for so long. And if they want to sit up at the big boys table and tell their own you know, denuded people that, look, here we are talking directly with the Americans because we're big and important and we've made the country mighty and powerful. And, and frankly, I would rather you know, keep up the sanctions on North Korea until that you know, tin pot dictatorship collapsed. So what has happened with the U.K. and this poisoning? Is this a turning point in any way? Is this e- either for discussion or conflict? Well... Let's avoid the conflict. I mean, the, the, uh, the Russians have been thinking about it quite seriously for a few years. They've made a number of changes in their military. Um, they're not the military they had in the 1980s. I mean, the idea of a, a tidal wave of Russian tanks rolling across to the, uh, Europe to the Atlantic Ocean is not in the cards. But they've been thinking very seriously about conventional conflict. Uh, some of the Americans, they just don't talk about it that much, but... Now, we don't, that's a risk we don't need. Let's, let's face it, this, this is 2018. It's been 73 years since the end of the, the last conflict, um, global conflict, and that killed almost 4% of the world's population. You know, we had something a little over 2 billion people in 1940, and uh, 76.8 million people died in the Second World War. We haven't had a war like that since, and we don't need one. So I think we have to go back to the, the careful management that we had for decades. It kept the world stable. Do you fear we're moving? Now. Do you fear we're moving towards that? Um, blundering into an accident is is more like it. Hmm. Um, but the Russians, you know, like to play brinksmanship games, um, and we have people who don't understand them as much as they used to, and don't know how to uh, produce carefully nuanced responses. And, and we need to actually spend more on defense ourselves just so we can say, okay, here's our supply of you know, stakes in the game. Uh, we can meet you 
let's talk it out rather than spending these. How is this playing in Russia? Uh, obviously, you mentioned that Russia will react to this by, with, with their own expulsion. Uh, how is this playing back home? Obviously, there's an election uh, with Putin and such. How is this playing back home? Well, well that's part of it. And, and Putin is also showing that he is a strong man, you know, and he is capable um, uh, of, of playing all sorts of games. And he's, he's pushing, pushing the limits quite hard. Uh, largely so he can produce sort of foreign policy successes and increase Russia's prestige. Um, but the, the Russians have also been feeling a little neglected and uh, isolated. And there are, there are some flashpoints that, that have built up. And there's some, there are some places where the world is starting to get scary. We're, we're very close to, well, remember three weeks ago in, in Syria, um, we had a bunch of Russian mercenaries that got uh, shot to bits by uh, American military contractors, mm. largely because you know, they they kept ignoring the American warnings. But you had Americans shooting Russian citizens. Um, there have been um, there there are a few places like in the Baltic and some other places where uh, a NATO aircraft or a Russian aircraft, from the moment it leaves the runway, it, its radar warning signals start coming on because there's a whole mess of systems locked onto it. Hmm. I mean, it's, it, the, the tensions are rising, and an accident could happen. Where is this going? How do you stop that from happening? Well, with talk, with serious talk, um, with sort of you know, firm commitment, but not too firm. It is, the Russians buster because they always have. I mean, it's a characteristic of, of their diplomacy. And um, at the same time, you also look you know, at propaganda. And they've been um, causing as much obfuscation and denial and, uh, and everything else as they possibly can with this chemical weapons incident. But they always do that. The, the rest of us have to be firm, calm, and measured. And, and basically let them... Yeah, push the limits a little bit, but know that they're pushing a brick wall that isn't going to budge. Do you think the Trump uh, Kim Jong Un meeting will ever happen? Uh, there's a lot that can make it derail, um, and I think there's only one outcome we really want out of uh, you know, any meeting with North Korea, and that's them with no ballistic missiles, no nuclear weapons, no chemical ones, uh, and agreeing to be quiet and behave themselves. Fascinating times. John Thompson has been with us, security consultant, strategic intelligence group, the UK expelling 23 diplomats in response to the nerve gas used in the attempted assassination of a former spy. John, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. You know, we talked about, uh, and how many times have we talked about mass shootings uh, in the United States on this show? And, of course, uh, it seems every time there's an incident, whether it's a Sandy Hook, whether it's a Las Vegas, whether it's a Parkland, Florida, everybody looking at each other as if to, well, is it now? Will there be change now? Will this move the discussion forward? And uh, it actually seemed to at one point uh, in a stunning, a a stunning uh, show of uh, solidarity, I guess. I guess in the end it was all theater. With Donald Trump and uh, members of of, uh, both sides of the House talking about gun control, talking about stopping bump stops, talking about stocks, talking uh, talking about uh, raising the age to buy an automatic weapon to 21. These were all things that and background checks. These were all things that that Donald Trump said needed to be done. And he actually uh, mocked others in the room for being afraid of the NRA, the National Rifle Association, and, and, and basically accused them all of being afraid. And then a day later, he meets with the NRA and now says there's no political will to make any changes. Well, there's never been any political will to make changes. That's why we're still having the discussion. But there certainly seems to be will within the country, with you know, with, with within states that are all fighting this. So to say there's no political will, there's no political will because you're waiting on everybody else to make the decisions that you said you could do that everyone else was afraid of the NRA. It appears that it's Donald Trump that is, in fact, 
afraid of the NRA. With that, students in the U.S. walking out of class today to protest gun con- uh, for gun control laws. The walkouts, 17 minutes in length, one for each minute to honor the victims of Parkland, Florida. To talk more about all of this, Ju Young, uh, Young Lee is with us, Associate Professor, Sociology, University of Toronto, an expert in gun violence, and is with us now. Ju Young, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Thanks for having me, Scott. So how organized is this protest? I, I, I just read somewhere that this was one of the largest protests that we've seen since the Vietnam War era. Is that accurate? Uh, is this going to have an impact? Yeah, I mean, the numbers are still kind of rolling in, but... If you're on Twitter or on social media, there are people posting from all over the United States uh, photos of just humongous crowds walking out of different high schools uh, in protest of, you know, the NRA stranglehold on gun control policy in the U.S. So I think the thing that makes this thing so fascinating to me as a sociologist is how these kids, these are teenagers, have been able to use social media, primarily Twitter and Facebook, to raise awareness and just drum up a lot of enthusiasm for this movement. You know, uh, many said after Sandy Hook that that would be the turning point because there were so many helpless kids that that were killed. Uh, However, the difference I'm thinking with that and this is those kids couldn't speak for themselves. These ones are old enough to to mobilize. Is that the difference here? As you mentioned, these kids are not only tired of it, but they have the means and and so on to, to make a difference. Exactly. I think that's a huge difference. I think, morally speaking, the country uh, was torn apart after Sandy Hook because these were children being gunned down in broad daylight. But the key difference now is that the, the, the shooting happened at a high school with a population that is extremely savvy at using social media and really good at, you know, communicating and branding this whole movement, you know, they've, they've come up with these hashtags, never again, and the, the hashtag March for Our Lives. Um, I think that that's, you know, the, the, the fact that this is happening also in a midterm election year is also kind of significant. So the, the key thing, I think, is going to be can these kids and, uh, you know, the media sustain the momentum around this movement? going into the midterm elections. Your thoughts after, uh, you know, and, and I wondered, especially with his reaction to uh, the chemical warfare that was going on in Syria, and we saw shots on the news of kids suffering, I thought, how can anyone sit in a, in a room full of parents or families that have been through such a massacre and not be moved in some way? And sure enough, he reacted, and then he, he sits down with, with both uh, parties, from, people from both parties, and, and talks about how the need for back background checks to raise the age to 21 um, and uh, and the elimination of uh, bump stocks. And and everybody was sitting there with their mouth hanging wide open, wondering, oh, my goodness, has this gone from is this guy gone from zero to hero where immediately he's going to be the one that finally changes this? And then a day later, he meets with the NRA and it's all out the window. He even accuses people in the meeting of being afraid of the NRA and that's exactly what he is. Yeah, I think it's, uh, he's afraid of the NRA. He's also afraid of losing their base, like their supporters who are, you know, like very diehard gun rights people. Um, you know, his popularity is in the toilet at the moment. He has the lowest approval rating of all uh, modern U.S. presidents. And, you know, he's really playing to that base. Um, but the other thing about him is that he's shown through his very short tenure that he, he doesn't really have a strong sense of platform. Yeah. He just has uh, ideas and, and, and mottos that he kind of throws out there. Because, he reacts, yeah. Exactly. Uh, so that being said, when you heard that, what did you think? Did you think, oh, my goodness, we're at a turning point here? Or did you think this is going nowhere? He'll flip-flop on this the way he does everything else. I mean, do you think he is the guy to get this done? Does he have enough support to get this done? No, I don't think he's the guy to get it done, and I, I did think he would flip-flop. I thought that he was sort of placating the media at the moment and sort of showing at least symbolically that he was concerned, but, you know, we saw, as you mentioned, how easily he was flipped by the NRA. Um, you know, he's come out many times and said really dangerous stuff about gun control policy. If you remember after the Pulse nightclub shooting, which, uh, you know, was a, another devastating mass shooting in Florida, 
he came out and said that he's against gun-free zones and that if people were packing heat in the nightclub, that perhaps that, that event, that tragedy could have been averted. I think the people that get it done are going to be the, you know, if Democrats can turn the House and the Senate in the midterm and if they can, if they can get a majority back or at least if they can turn, uh, take away some of the seats that are being hotly contested, that that could be the start of the change. Uh, how do you think these kids are reacting to the fact that he said that and then flip-flop? Because, you know, my guess is they're not uh, that plugged into uh, politics or what's happening in campaigns and such. They're living their lives as teenagers. Uh, the fact that he said something and then turned his back, uh, seemingly turned his back on them, how do you think they're going to react? Well, I think I've seen some things from the leaders of the Parkland group, and they've been very savvy with this as well. So they've tried to take this away from being a blue versus red, Democrat versus Republican issue, and have turned it into more of a moral issue. And so they've, they've done things and, and said stuff like, you know, people who come out and support this cause are not uh, necessarily partisan. It's really just about protecting people's lives. And so I think they've done like very subtle things like that that have appealed to more moderate right-wing people who are conventionally voting Republican, conventionally voting for candidates who are supported by the NRA to make an appeal to their broader morality, to say that this is not really a partisan issue anymore. This is about 17 kids being murdered. How can we uh, stop this from happening again? Uh, Do you think the kids will let up? Do you think that Trump is going to have to uh, is going to have to answer to this, the fact that he has flip flopped on it? Well, I think that again, a big thing will uh, time will tell. At midterm, at the midterm election, there are a lot of seats that are potentially up for grabs, and we've already seen in some of these special elections, um, conventionally red districts going blue, and so I think there could be a referendum on a lot of these policies. I think you know the thing that's most powerful about this movement to me is the fact that there are lifelong NRA members who are coming out vocally supporting this movement, people who are turning in their AR-15s, people who are saying, you know, these kids are right, we should have universal, universal background checks, um, these, these policies are very sensible, they're not going to affect 99% of lawful gun owners, so why not? So I think that that's going to be the real um, tell is how, how, how it all plays out in a, you know, down the road in the fall. Are, uh, Ju Young, are these politicians aware that these are high school kids and in a couple of years will be of age to vote? I mean, they should be. I think that those who have been in bed with the NRA, like Marco Rubio in Florida, should be very worried because a lot of these kids are actually registering now and are planning to vote. And these are people who are going to be alive uh, much later, much, much long after a, lo- a lot of these politicians are dead. And so I think there could be this kind of shift, this sort of uh, turn where this new generation is sick and tired of Washington creating these policies. And, And by the way, I should mention that the vast majority of Americans, whether they're Republican or Democrat, are in favor of sensible gun laws like the ones that these kids are promoting. It's really the leadership that have failed people. And again, it just seems like a land of extremes. I mean, these people aren't talking about taking people's guns away. They're talking about guns with rules, the way most of the world, uh, you know, operates. Exactly. And so that's the thing that I think the NRA has been really good at tricking people into believing that there's a slippery slope here, that any regulation is the beginning of the government eventually seizing guns, but that's never ever been on the table. It's always been, why don't why 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 is it that people can go into a gun show and buy a firearm without having to uh, go through a background check? Why is it that people who have been arrested for domestic violence can still buy firearms? Like, shouldn't it be a little bit harder? And shouldn't we treat it as a responsibility? That's that's always been the the sort of line by liberals, but the NRA again has been very good at at practicing fear-mongering and getting people to feel worried that the government's just going to break down their door and take their guns away. Speaking of fear-mongering, obviously uh, this administration feels the same way about immigration, terrorism. uh, They'll link all of this in some way. Um, Do you think Americans realize that more of them kill each other than terrorists ever do? 
I mean, that's definitely, uh, there's part of the American voter uh, voters that, that see it that way. I think that they... Do they understand this is domestic terrorism and it's being fueled by their own government in their own backyards? I mean, I definitely think there are a percentage who do, but I think that there are another percentage who who don't believe the biggest threat are white nationalists and domestic terrorists who, who go and shoot up a, a high school, but are in fact people from a faraway place somewhere in the Middle East who may be linked to a terrorist organization, even though the chances of that actually unfolding are much lower than, again, being killed by a domestic terrorist. And the stats don't lie. I mean, it is what it is. Yeah, exactly. And I think, but the problem with with, uh, the moment we're in is that the president has done so much to delegitimize science, to delegitimize the news media, you know, calling everything fake news, saying that climate science is is a hoax. And so people are very skeptical of empirical reality and facts, and they've sort of turned away from that and, and believe that, you know, these things are all just kind of cooked up by the liberal media to scare them. That's why I don't like the term fake news. It just, it just makes everybody confused and nobody trusts anybody, but I guess that's what extremists are trying to do. With the voting age and, and what we were talking about earlier, uh, is this just a matter of time before? Because many have said, this is never going to happen. There, there's never going to be any rules. That being said, as we mentioned, it's not long before this segment of the population is able to vote. Or once they become a voting age, they'll all want guns. I mean, will it change? I mean, it, it seems like it's inevitable. I think it can change. I think that we're often very nearsighted about history. And so if we think about things like cigarettes and, and other kinds of items that have now become much more regulated, there, were, there was a time where people couldn't imagine uh, the government having such a strong hand in restricting access to something like a cigarette. But, but now it's sort of taken for granted. So uh, and the same goes for things like voting rights for women or, or African-Americans. There was a time in American history where these things just seemed ludicrous. But through, through multiple social movements, things have changed. So I think that this is one of the more, I guess, encouraging uh, moments in the fight for gun control. Uh, Donald Trump, as we mentioned, uh, seemed sympathetic at the beginning, then met with the uh, NRA and flip-flopped and said he's not going to do... He said that he was going to investigate other court cases and what have you. I don't know what more sort of information you need on this. Uh, He said there's no political will. What does that mean? How can a president say that? Is he not the political will? I think he's just speaking uh, out of the side of his mouth. I, I don't think he's actually tuned in to, he's trying to ignore the fact that there are millions and, you know, of people who are supporting this movement. Um, You know, he's also somebody who didn't like the fact that, you know, President Obama's inauguration dwarfed his own and that the Women's March was much bigger than the the crowd that came out to his march. Uh, I think he's just somebody who's sort of in denial. And he says things because, He's trying to construct his own reality, even though there's all this stuff happening that shows uh, to the otherwise. Are you surprised that the NRA hasn't kind of seen the writing on the wall and just as far as damage control gets ahead of this in the sense like, you know what, uh, you can see this gaining momentum or even from the moral responsibility and then say, hey, uh, OK, we've thought about this. We're going to do this, this and, and what and be a responsible organization in this way by getting ahead of the story. Yeah, I think that they tried to do that by having uh, Dana Loesch go to the town hall and they, they sort of used her as you know, um, a mouthpiece for the organization to uh, double down on this idea of gun rights. Um, I think that the problem, one of the big problems is that, you know, Republicans, Democrats, NRA, gun control people, they respond differently to these phenomena. So like when a mass shooting happens, people who are on the left and in favor of sensible gun control laws say, this is exactly why we need to restrict access to guns. People like Nicholas Cruz shouldn't have been able to buy an AR-15. People on the right, however, have a different approach. They, they still believe this idea that um, the fact that he's able to get that gun is exactly the reason why everybody should be able to get a gun to protect themselves. Yeah. Um, so 
It's an unfortunate way that both sides sort of interpret the same event differently, and then they become more entrenched in these opposing views. Um, does this talk or, or, or talk the, the discussion or lack of the discussion that's going on in the United States right now, does this just fuel gun sales? I mean, since Florida, do we know, I mean, are more and more people buying guns? Because normally when there's chatter of control, the opposite happens. People go out and start stockpiling. Absolutely. That's the, the irony of all of this is that, uh, you know, mass shootings and the debate around what to do about them has always really been really good for the firearms industry. It's great for business. People are scared that the government's going to come along and take guns away so they go out and buy more guns. Um, this is something that I observed directly when I was in Philadelphia. I joined a, a gun club, and I, I, I spent time with people who are you know, part of the NRA and learned how to shoot guns from them. And you know, there was all this chatter about how Obama's going to regulate this, Obama's going to regulate that, and we really need to, like, stockpile. So it, it's definitely playing into the, the kind of multi-billion dollar firearms industry. Is the only way to change this way of thinking is somehow the next mass shooting has, I don't know, a, a, a gunfight in the OK Corral, everybody's loaded up and they all get leveled? Is, it, like, is that what we're waiting for here, another example? I don't know if that would do it, to be honest. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure exactly what it would take. I think that, you know, if these things became a little closer to home for some of these policymakers, like if they knew someone who lost a child, um, that could be a turning point, at least in their own individual voting and their policies. Um, you know, short of that, I'm, I'm kind of at a loss. I think that this movement has been really productive in terms of raising awareness, but... Um, you know, and like anything in politics, there's cycles. So this next midterm, we may see a turn where more Democrats are voted into Congress. Um, and in 2020, Donald Trump may get voted out. Who knows? But, you know, that can also lead to a, a sort of revolt in sense, because that's, uh, you know, a lot of people have said that's why Donald Trump was elected in the first place. People mm. were tired of Barack Obama. They were tired of insider sort of figures being elected into office. So I don't know. <laughs> Ju Young Lee has been with us, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Toronto, a expert in gun violence. Thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. I'm sure we'll talk again about this. Thanks, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.